I think that if you ask a lot of people what they think of the Old Testament, they would say one of two things or both. First of all, that it is a collection of stories for Sunday school for the children. But then secondly, it's, it's basically just a series of calls for us to believe and obey. You know, do this, don't do that. Almost sort of a mindless obedience. Just whatever God says, that's what you're supposed to do. But in the Old Testament, we also find three wisdom books, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And each one is different, but all three call us to pursue wisdom. That is to say, we are called... We are summoned to think hard as well as humbly, to keep our eyes open, to use our conscience as well as common sense, and not to shrink from the most difficult and disturbing questions of life. So it isn't mindless obedience that we're called to. In terms of structure, the the three books couldn't be more different. Proverbs is a collection of short sayings, Ecclesiastes has longer reflections on life. And then Job is a story in which we have um, a series of dialogues um, dealing with the problems of life. The one fundamental belief that undergirds all three wisdom books is that God created the world, which means that there is order in the world, there is meaning to life in the world because God created the world. I would say that if you do not believe that God created the world, then the wisdom books have nothing to say to you because you have ripped them from their roots. In Proverbs, there is a perceived order in creation. In Ecclesiastes, there is confusion about that order, what's going on. And in Job, there is a hiddenness to order. We can't quite make sense of it. Of the three books, I suspect that Proverbs is the favorite among modern Christians, um, more than Ecclesiastes and Job. Uh, Ecclesiastes has some cute sayings that people will quote from time to time. Um, But Proverbs, I think, is the favorite, in part because it doesn't seem to need context. You don't need to know when it was written, the historical context, the cultural context, the religious context. Each proverb seems to stand on its own. And it would seem, I think a lot of people think, that you can read the proverb and you can get to the heart of the meaning and and apply it directly to your situation in life. But that is actually not what the book of Proverbs is intended to do. It is constructed so that we have a general sense of how life is supposed to be. But more than that, it is to show us how we are to pursue wisdom. It isn't so much directions for right living, though many people take it that way, but rather to show us how we are to go about learning wisdom. Many see it as a guide to cause and effect. If you do this, this will be the result. If you don't do these things, then these will be the results. The book of Job shows this to be completely insufficient. Ecclesiastes shows this to be impossible. A cause and effect does not always work. One more thing. 
if in fact God is the creator of the world, that is what undergirds the three wisdom books, there's something else, and that is we are to have the fear of the Lord, the fear of the creator, and this is the beginning of wisdom. Job 28, 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Proverbs 9, 10, and I've only chosen one verse, there are many in Proverbs about this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, 13, now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It is the fear of the Lord that keeps the, the shrewdness, I would say, of the book of Proverbs from slipping into self-interest. Oh, if I do these things, then I will get all of these benefits. It is the fear of the Lord that also keeps us from becoming totally disillusioned, as we would see in the book of Ecclesiastes, and then just slipping into total despair. It is the fear of the Lord that keeps us from mutinying against God in the book of Job. Today we begin a study in one of these wisdom books, that is the book of Job. We've studied this in the past. I'd like to do that again in a, in a much briefer format than what we've done in the past. As we begin, you can open your Bibles to Job chapter one if you want. As we begin, I must warn you of some dangers. Many see the book of Job as a book about human suffering. We meet a man who is, in fact, afflicted physically and emotionally. He loses his children, his possessions, his health. And we encounter friends who do their best to try to help him out. They only make things worse. And we find Job struggling with his faith in God. The reality is Job, in fact, does suffer. And the suffering of the righteous man is a central theme. But the book is not to give us an answer to the problem of righteous suffering. Instead, the book asks questions about the nature of wisdom and where we can find it. Also, the book of Job is sometimes seen as providing answers. I think when we are done with the, our study, you will find that we still have a lot of questions that have not been answered. When it comes to Job's comforters, and that's even become an expression, someone who's a, uh, one of Job's comforters giving false comfort, it's, in, it's possible to dismiss them too lightly, to just say, yeah, these guys have nothing good to say. In this book, they are not presented as hypocrites that have come to gloat about their friend. They are not heretics giving false doctrine. They are not fools who are not giving serious arguments. Rather, it is, I think, it shines a light on the arrogance of pontificating about the application of the truth. I know, Job, why these things happen to you. And in the process, they misrepresent God and they misjudge their fellow man, that is Job. Lastly, if you're going to study the book of Job, if you want to understand it, you have to read the whole book, okay? Um, it's not a collection of ready-made answers, okay? But look at the structure of Job. The first two chapters and the last 11 verses of the book are written in prose. Everything else is poetry. 
If you would read chapters one and two and then skip to the last 11 verses of the book, you might think that you have an almost complete picture of Job's former state, what he was like in the past, how he endured incredible, incredible suffering, and then at the end, how God rewarded his faithful endurance. And so you would have a message, your conclusion would be, that God may test us severely with sufferings we cannot comprehend, but then ultimately everything's going to turn out well and he will give us more than what we had before. But in chapters 3 through 37, we have the dialogues between Job and his comforters as they try to make sense of what has happened to him. We begin our study where the book of Job begins, with an examination of this man, Job. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first five verses of chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there was a man, or lived a man, whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 camels, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. We are not told when Job lived, though many have speculated that he predated Moses. Uh, one of his friends, Elihu the Buzzite, as mentioned in chapter 32, um, Abraham's uncle was named Buzz. And so people have suggested that, in fact, Elihu was from that generation, so maybe before the time of Abraham. Um, yeah, I, there must have been more than one guy in the ancient world named Buzz, um, but some have speculated. We are told, we're not given any genealogy, okay? We're not given, it's like Melchizedek, we're not told, you know, he was a descendant of so-and-so. We're simply not told. We're told he lived in the land of Uz. We're not even sure where that is. It is mentioned, by the way, in the book of Lamentations. Uh, you who live in the land of Uz, which would seem to indicate that it was near the Dead Sea, because near the land of Edom. Some have argued that it is northeast of Palestine. The reality is we don't know. Okay, We don't know. His friends, however, we are told Eliphaz is from Temanite, is a Temanite. He's from the city of Teman, which is in southern Palestine. Bildad was a Shuite who may have come as far away as from modern-day Iraq near the Euphrates River. Zophar the Naamathite, that's between Beirut and Damascus. And then Elihu the Buzzite, again, uh, someone who was a cousin of Abraham. Is it important to know where Uz was? Well, I think it is important. It demonstrates a number of things. First of all, God had people outside the covenant line, people who were not the children of Abraham, who were not the children of Jacob. They're not Israelites. They may not have received the sign, the seal of circumcision, but they did walk in the ways of the Lord. 
These people had wisdom. They struggled with the complexities of life and they serve as an example for the rest of God's people. Job is mentioned, by the way, elsewhere in the Bible. I don't know if you know this. He's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14, verses 12 to 14. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful and I stretch out my hand against it to cut off its food supply and send famine upon it and kill its men and its animals and their animals, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save only themselves by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord. And then Job is mentioned in the New Testament. He's mentioned in the book of James, toward the end of the book in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Brothers take as an example of patience in the face of suffering, or as an example, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In this man, Job, we find a man of integrity who served God. Again, who calls to mind Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. We're not told his ancestry, Melchizedek's, or Job's as well. But these are men who feared God and who worshipped him. In verse number 8, by the way, God refers to Job as my servant. This is a title we find him giving also to Abraham, Moses, to Caleb, to David, to Isaiah, and even Nebuchadnezzar. In each case, the individual mentioned is singled out and commissioned to carry out God's purpose. Apparently, Job is one of those men. The second reason why it's important to note that Job was not an Israelite is because, in a sense, he is representative of all who suffer, not simply of those who are among the Jews, among the Israelites. What kind of man was he? In terms of his character, we find five traits, two pairs and then a fifth one, which is implied. He was blameless and upright. Um, he's a man of pure motivation. Doesn't mean he was, blameless doesn't mean that he was sinless, but he had personal integrity, someone who walked in close fellowship with the Lord. And he was upright. Let's describe someone who obeys God, who does what God would tell him to do. He feared God and shunned evil. Fear of God is found frequently, as I mentioned, in wisdom literature. And it stands for solid and complete trust in God. The fifth thing which is implied is wisdom. And I would argue that Job was a man of great wisdom. He feared God. He was blameless and upright. He shunned evil. What kind of a man was he in terms of material possessions? He was quite wealthy. Uh, we're given almost a catalog list of his wealth. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. Um, may be hard for us to relate to what that means, but we are told he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So he's a man of great integrity. He's a man of great wealth. The author doesn't end there. In verses 4 and 5, we have a practical outworking of his integrity. His children used to get together and party, and afterwards he would, in fact, uh, well, let's start over. 
he shared obviously the wealth that he had. His children were able to share in his wealth and they would get together. Um, he saw himself as responsible for his family. He was, on this Father's Day, we would recognize a good father. In fact, a great father. So he would have them purified after the party because maybe if they drunk too much, they might have cursed God in their hearts. They might have done things they should not have done. And so Job would have them purified, a ritual of cleansing, and then he would offer a burnt offering to God, saying, you know, if my kids have messed up, if they have sinned, please forgive their sins. He had a pure heart. He had integrity. And he had great wealth. But he was not overconfident. He didn't say, look at this, God has blessed me, nothing wrong can happen. He, in fact, humbles himself and sacrifices for the sake of his children. We are told, by the way, it was his custom. This wasn't a one-time thing. This is what he did. Now the scene changes. We've been given the background, Job and Uz. I'm not quite sure when, but a long time ago. Now the, sh the scene shifts to heaven. Look, if you would, in verses 6 through 12. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Consider what we see in these verses. First of all, there is a dimension to reality that is beyond our ability to perceive. Much of the modern project is based on empirical evidence, the things that we can perceive by the senses. There's stuff going on that we cannot see, that we cannot perceive. As the saying goes, there are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamed of in many philosophies. We're not told where this took place. It is in the presence of God. But in verse 12, we are told that Satan went out from the presence of God. It, re it represents a part of created order where God dwells and the angels, uh, or the sons of God, as they are known in other translations, come into God's presence. And... In this place, this other place, Satan shows up. Question, did Job know about this? Probably not. And I don't think it's ever explained to him, at least not in this book. But Job knew there were things beyond what he could perceive. How do I know that? He said, perhaps my children may have cursed God in their hearts. You can't see what someone is thinking. You cannot have empirical data necessarily about what is one in one's heart. Job seemed to understand this, I think, far better than we do in the modern world. 
The time is indefinite. We're simply told one day. One day they all show up, the sons of God or angels, as the NIV has it. These are created beings that God created for his purposes. They are his servants. And they come and present themselves before God to give an accounting of their activities, perhaps to receive new orders. And among these sons of God is Satan, whose name means the accuser. You see a note in the NIV. Should he be considered a son of God, an angel, a servant of God, a participant, an intruder? I see him as an intruder. The angels have come to give an account, to receive new orders, and in comes Satan. Satan also came with them. Several things should be kept in mind. First of all, Satan is a created being. He does not have existence apart from God. Um, Like it or not, Satan serves God's purposes, but he must work within certain limits. We'll say more about Satan in a bit. But most importantly, I think, the scene is one of an open forum in which God permits the testing of Job. The plan was not hatched in some secret meeting. It was decided openly in the heavenly assembly. God's motivation, I think, is, is difficult here. I think based on his complete confidence in Job, um, he allows Satan to test him. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? That's something for which I do not have an answer. It is important, though, to recognize God's character, that God is sovereign. He is in control. He is the ruler of the of the universe, of creation. He presides over all things, including the angels or the sons of God. Even Satan is one of his creatures. This is not a dualism. This is not a good God and a bad God known as Satan, in which they are duking it out over the person of Job. Satan is, in fact, a creature, and he can only do what God allows him to do. God is in charge. God didn't simply create the universe and then sort of let it go on its own. He is intimately involved. He knows what is going on. And yet, and yet, this God who created the world is open to challenge. One of the things that is difficult for us to understand, how can God be in complete control and people still have freedom? Why does he allow people to rebel or to ask questions? He is not threatened when Satan shows up because he, in fact, is in control. Rather than throwing him out, say, hey, you don't belong here. These are the good guys. You're the bad guy. You need to get out. God, in fact, calls him to account. Where have you come from? As though God doesn't know. But Satan, as a creature, must give an account. Um, And I'm reminded... What happens when Adam and Eve sin and they cover themselves up and God comes into the garden and they hide? And God says, where are you? God knows where where Adam was and he knows what Satan has been doing. But as with Adam, 
God gives Satan an opportunity to confess, to admit what he's been doing. Satan, the one who is known as the accuser, which is not simply a title, I mean, this is what he does. He tries to accuse those who are God's people. He is the prosecuting attorney, if you wish, accusing us, oftentimes rightly so. He is the secret police, the Gestapo. He's always wandering to and fro and seeing who it is that he can accuse of doing what is wrong. First of all, he intrudes in this meeting. This is not something to which he was invited. And secondly, his response, yeah, I've been wandering to and fro on the earth, which, if you think about it, this is what we read about Cain, the curse of Cain who killed his brother. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. If you wish, pacing the earth back and forth with a frustration like a caged animal, a restless and rebellious, unrepentant spirit. Satan here, as the accuser, epitomizes alienation, aimlessness, and anxiety. He needs something to do. In the New Testament, we are told that Satan wanders to and fro like a roaring lion, seeing whom he may devour. He wants to find evidence of disloyalty among God's people. And he appears to delight in it. He loves doing what he does. So God asks him a question. Have you considered my servant Job? It is God who brings Job to Satan's attention. Satan may have been aware of Job, but Satan doesn't bring it up. God always takes the initiative. We might wonder, and I certainly have, why does God even do this? It's like, it's like poking a wild animal with a stick. You're, you're just provoking it. Why even bring Job up? Again, this is something for which I do not have an answer. Job is his servant. Job is a man of integrity, who is blameless and upright. He fears God and shuns evil. This is not a challenge, and I think that's the, the difficulty I have. I often read this and see it as a challenge, as though God is throwing down to Satan, saying, hey, consider my servant Job. But it is rather that God delights in his creation and in his creatures. He delights in the fact that Job is a man of integrity, that Job is a wise man and a humble man. And so, in a sense, he is... Make, say this correctly, but showing him off. This is one of my beautiful creatures. This is Job. Satan will have none of it. Rather, he taunts God. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? See, Satan is cynical. He's bent on destruction. So where God presents a man of beauty... Satan will have none of it. Rather, in his cynicism, he wants to destroy Job. He wants to destroy this creature of beauty, something that God has created. 
Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan would say no. That people only do what God says because they're scared of him or because they want to get some benefit from it. And God says, okay, you can take away everything he has. He is my servant. You can take away everything he has. Don't touch the man, but you can take away everything he has. And that's what, Job, or that's what Satan does. Look, if you would, at verse, beginning at verse 13. One day, just like we saw in the council in heaven, one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept, swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Verse 13, Satan begins his work, and he does his work well with four swift episodes we see what happens as a result of God's concession to Satan. It's calamity after calamity after calamity, and finally the last calamity, the losing of his children. First, he loses the oxen and the cattle, uh, the donkeys, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 uh, donkeys. The Sabaeans attacked and killed the servants. The Sabaeans were a roving band of marauders and raiders. Only one servant survives. This is a recurring theme, by the way. In all four calamities, there's one witness left alive to go back and tell Job about this. Secondly, the sheep, the 7,000 sheep, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. There's a great irony here that that Satan uses God's fire against God's servant. Why not just say lightning? Why not simply say that lightning came from the sky to show that even though Satan is the agent, um, I think the point is that it is, in fact, God who is bringing this about. By the way, as we go through the book of Job, it never occurs to Job to implicate Satan in what has happened to him. It is God and God alone who fills his thinking. Then there are the camels. The Chaldeans divided into three bands, and they took off with 3,000 camels. But the worst is yet to come. His ten children, seven sons and three daughters, are in the house of the oldest one when a Sirocco, an east wind from the desert, sweeps in and strikes a house. Again, we have that which is supposedly God's creation, and not supposedly, it is God's creation being used to bring about destruction. A couple things to note here. In these four calamities, we have an alternation, they alternate between heavenly and earthly forces. 
Did you notice that? First of all, it's the Sabaeans. And then it's fire from the sky. So earthly, heavenly. Then we have the Chaldeans. And then we have the Sirocco, the, the, the desert wind from the east that comes in. Um, and secondly, it seems that they came from the four corners of the compass, of the four directions of the compass. The Sabaeans from the south, the Chaldeans from the north, the lightning from the west, and in fact, the Sirocco comes from the east. At this point, I would encourage you to take some time, perhaps after the service, later in this week, to consider what it would be like to be in Job's place. To lose everything you have. And to lose loved ones as well. I don't know that we can adequately do so. But we should try to understand the devastation of such loss. And ask ourselves, how would I respond? How does Job respond? Look, if you would, verses 20 to 22. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshiped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. What did he do? First of all, he tore his clothes and he shaved his head. He acknowledged the reality of loss. It's not like, oh, well, that's, you know, these things are just temporary anyway. They're just earthly possessions. You know, my kids are going to die one day anyway. No, there is genuine sorrow here. There is genuine grief. It is important for us to acknowledge that we should not be unaffected. It's a double negative, but we should not be unaffected. We should restrain ourselves, and that in our grieving it should be within certain bounds. We're not to be swallowed up by our grief. We're not to despair, to give up all hope. Rather, we should fight against our passions until we are conformed to the good pleasure of God. Job is almost overcome by grief. He's not working to disguise. He's not sort of putting on a happy face. The Lord, the Lord will make everything okay. He tears his clothes. He shaves his head. In the ancient world, these were expressions of grief. He shows his anguish and his displeasure. He's not happy about this. And why should he be? But he also does not try to increase his grief. He's not starting to sort of prod himself into grieving even more deeply. He's not trying to exaggerate his sorrow. He has genuine sorrow. And then he does something not unexpected, if you're familiar, but amazing. He fell to the ground in worship. How is this possible? What does this mean? Consider that when that which is temporary is taken away, the permanent still remains. His possessions are gone. 
His kids are gone, but God is still there. And he falls to the ground and worships. He humbles himself before God. And we are told it isn't uh, without conscious thought. It's not just throwing himself on the ground because that might be taken as sort of throwing a fit. No, he has something important to say. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job acknowledges that God is in control. He is sovereign over all of life. When things are good and calm, and when there is tremendous calamity, in prosperity and in poverty, in life and in death, God is still in control. Three times, Job uses the name of the Lord, uses the name of God in the second part of his confession. He admits that everything he had, everything, including his sons and daughters, came from God. And therefore, they belong to God first. And for whatever reason, God, who had given him all these possessions and who had given him these children, has now chosen to take them back, to take them away. We are told that in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job didn't do anything that in fact would mar or blemish his faith in God. In his prosperity, Job never failed to acknowledge God, to praise God for his blessings. And we have him as a man of integrity, a man who is concerned about his children, these gifts from God. That doesn't change when he loses them. In his poverty, Job does the same thing. He acknowledges who God is. It has been said that we are more prone to sin in prosperity than in poverty. Not sure. I think if you go from prosperity to poverty, um, sin is a real option for many people. Whenever I think of the story, I think of um, the father of Pastor Woosley, Dan and Lonnie's pastor in the Philippines, um, was a wheat farmer in Kansas. And it was almost harvest time, I think, a day or two away from harvest time and a hailstorm came in and totally destroyed the crop. And Mr. Woosley went out and looked and he said, as Job did, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's remarkable. Job has passed the test, but Satan is not finished. The Lord willing, we will see next Sunday the second part of the test in which Satan afflicts Job's body, his physical being, and then his friends show up. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we've begun this study in the book of Job, we see Job, your servant, a man of integrity, 
who sees things, I think, more clearly than we do oftentimes, that all we have comes from you. You give it, you have the right to take it away. The things we have here are temporary. You alone are permanent. In the face of calamity, we should worship, we should acknowledge who you are, that what you have given to us is from you. And in your time, you may take it away. May we also see that there are things we don't see, we do not perceive. The way you work in our lives and in the lives of others, we oftentimes do not understand. In part because we do not perceive it. But I suspect even if we could, we still would not understand as we should. May we, like Job, see what is truly permanent and what is merely temporary. I pray that you will guide us in our study through this book. May we learn from it, may we be encouraged by it, and may we worship you as a result. Thank you for bringing us together to worship you this day. May we have a sense of your presence in the coming week in all that we do. May your spirit and your grace be with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.